1: Welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket and, well, we're a bit gloomy tonight because Australia have retained the ashes, I'm sure you already know that, and actually they deserve to, even though England put up a, a big fight today and, and took the game into the last hour, it was never really realistic that England were going to survive those well nearly 90-odd overs. And, and keep the Ashes alive for another Test match because the pitch was doing so much and this Australian bowling attack, Simon, are, are so good.
0: Yeah, they were excellent again. I have to say, credit to England. They took the game much further than I thought they were going to do. If you'd asked me at the start of the day, I'd have said tea time, possibly even before that. But to get it to the last hour, 13 and a half overs left. Great credit to them. I thought Overton played magnific- magnificently. He's got a better defence than Jason Roy, who started as England's opener for this series. And, and Leach as well dug in. Butler, I thought, was, was excellent. Denley as well. I mean, they they really gave it a go today. But the damage was done on the, the, the first and second days. I thought England were woeful on the first day. You know, insipid performance. And then Australia really turned the screw on the second day. England... Drop catches, and there was the, the no ball, the leech no ball. I mean, how important was that in the final analysis? So, yeah, well played, Australia. They thoroughly deserved it. And, you know, it, it has that feeling, it had that feeling throughout the series that England had just been playing catch up the whole time, just trying to hold on to Australia's shirt tails. And in the end, well, you, you, tr- you tried to do that for too long, and they, they get free. And that's what happened today, ultimately.
1: The lesson learned, really, is, uh, which I'm sure everybody knows, is that, you know, don't fall behind in the ashes, uh, which in a way makes that 2005 series so memorable because England did fall behind there and still came through to win it but generally it just doesn't happen, You one team gets ahead and such is the intensity of this great rivalry that they never lose their grip afterwards, once you've got that bit of superiority it's very hard for the other team to, to claw their way back and I mean England did fabulously of course to, to win that match at Headingley but as you say, you know, playing catch up throughout, it, it does feel as if Australia were just a slightly better team. I think that you know, it would be fair to say their preparation, as we actually have said all along, was slightly better than England because I think their focus was was much more on the Ashes. I mean, it's. It's a big thing when you haven't won the Ashes in whichever country you're visiting for almost 20 years. It was a big focus for Andrew Strauss's team when they won in 2010-11 and they prepared meticulously for that trip. And Australia themselves really have put all their eggs into this basket although they wanted to do well in the World Cup this was their priority winning the Ashes back for the first time in England for 18 years 2001 you know they had a couple of the members of that of that team in the support staff that won the Ashes here in 2001 obviously Steve Waugh being one Justin Langer another and I'm sure they would have kept ramming the message home about how important it is to win away in a way it's, it puts a great marker down on your team when you manage to win a away from home because, you know, the conditions are totally different to what the Australians are used to at home. Perhaps in a way they've been lucky that it's been a dry summer and playing the, all the tests in late summer as well. The pitches have been pretty dry. We haven't had those sort of green seamers that England exploited so well in 2015 and for a couple of series before that. So in a way, Australia have been playing in slightly more favourable condition circumstances than perhaps they would have expected but still they've capitalized on it superbly they've rotated their bowl as well they've got their batsmen in form before the series started by sending the likes of Labuschagne to play uh, in county cricket and uh, you know just feel as if all their trucks were pointed in this one direction of becoming a, a juggernaut that could drive home their superiority and win the ashes back. Or at least, or at least retain the ashes. It's an interesting point you make about the pitches, actually, because I mean, I think
0: England have been unhappy with the surfaces that they've been given in this series. They wanted more grass on it. I mean, and I've heard Johnny Bairstow and Stuart Broad make a you know comment about it. I don't, I'm not sure why there's not more grass on the pitch. And but you know, Bairstow said earlier in this Test match as well. You know, the pitch hasn't got much grass on it. You know, it's, not, it's clear that that's not what England wanted. But you, you sort of have to get on with it, don't you? You have to get on and play on the, the surface that you're asked to play on. The other thing I think that was clear, and I, I think it might have infected the way the game went on the first uh, a couple of days, is I think both captains, both teams, realised it was a really important toss. Joe Root at the end of the game said, you know, it was a good toss to win. And, I, you know, he, he put a brave face on it at the, at the toss on the first day, saying, uh, you know, it's, it's just a bit tacky and we might be able to get a couple of early wickets, which of course they did. Uh, but I think... I think both captains and both sides knew how important the, the toss was, and Australia made the most of it. I mean, having said that, you know, England had their opportunities; they had their chance to limit Australia to about three hundred and fifty. And if they'd done that, well, I'm not saying the game would have played out differently because it would have taken on a, a sort of different shape. And it still may well have been that England were, you know, batting to cling on, on on the final day, or you know, having to chase a difficult total on the final day. But you know, these things happen, don't they? You have you have to you, Australia won. Three tosses in this Ashes series to England's one, um, but it, you know, it's how you play, isn't it, Graham Gooch? The old, uh, the old adage: it's not how winning the toss; it's how you play. So what about today's play, then, uh, Yoz I mean, England gave it a go, but just to talk about conditions. Australia getting the ball to reverse quite early. People say, well, how do they get the ball to reverse? that early uh, the commentator's talking about you know 20 overs the ball was beginning to go and then they get the ball changed and it starts to go as well it's almost as if Australia had two new balls towards the end there you know one with the change of ball and then with the actual new ball towards the end I mean that that makes a bit of a difference as well doesn't it
1: no foul play was at work today I can guarantee that what you tend to find is that uh, a new ball on a fourth or fifth day pitch, especially one as dry as this, does just naturally scuff up very quickly. You'll often find you bowl on a, with a new ball on a pitch which has played, been played on for four or five days, lots of holes and pits and rough <laughs> that that's around the, the, the surface, and the ball just cuts up very quickly. So even after one over, with a bowler like Pat Cummins, who doesn't actually bowl with the seam bolt upright, but he bowls a lot of wobble seam deliveries and the old cross- cross-seam delivery as well. So you quite quite often find after even two overs that the, the ball on one side is really quite scuffed up and then you just work out which side is looking better and look after that side and just gradually let the other side wear and you can get reverse swing after ten overs. I thought that uh, Mitchell Stark was actually reverse swinging the ball really quite early on in this uh, England final innings and it's just natural circ- it's natural conditions. It doesn't matter about the outfield. It's more about the ball constantly landing at 85 miles an hour on this very abrasive pitch. I've seen it happen at Old Trafford regularly in county cricket and indeed somewhere like Lord's as well. Uh, when it gets a little cracks on it and little imperfections mm. and it's dry and very hard. It just scuffs up the ball naturally, and Australia made brilliant use of it. And you know, talking about the, the Australian bowlers and you know the way they bowled, there was just that little bit of extra sort of malice and kind of almost slight nastiness in the way that they bowled. And I don't mean that in a in a rude way. You know, it's part of the game. But they were they just at the batsman that bit more. Hazelwood and Cummins. I mean, I think I said right at the start of the series that I think those two bowlers in particular, augmented by Stark, were as good as a, a pace. A Attack as Australia have ever had, you know, Cummins has, has that probing mm. accuracy that McGrath had, and Hazelwood and, and Stark are just, you know, masters of taking wickets, bowling wicket-taking deliveries, and in Hazelwood's case, never letting the batsman free with with any easy balls either. So there's no escape from the for the batsman really, and they, they made that tell over the series. Yeah. That's right, isn't it? I and mean, they, they seem to
0: bowl much better as a group, whereas England's bowling was good at times. I mean, Broad has been excellent in the series, second-leading wicket-taker. Archer has come in and taken wickets as well. But I just wonder about the backup, that sort of all-round effort from England. You know, they've had five bowlers, haven't You they? They've had five front-line bowlers, but there's not been that same accuracy, that same penetration, that same backup, really, to the two, to the two main bowlers, Broad, and Archer, as Australia all seem to have that. I mean, even Lyon. I mean, Lyon's an interesting one. Took nine wickets in the first game, so, you know, helped win them a test match. And he's only taken sort of a handful of wickets since, seven wickets, uh, at quite a, a cost. But what I think he does really well is he, he's, he's, a, he's threatening the batsman, but also he's holding an end superbly for the others to, to rotate at the other end. So although Lyon perhaps hasn't had his best series... Hasn't taken the wickets, perhaps we would have expected, say today. You know, you might have expected him to take a few more wickets today. What he's, what he's done, he's played a, a vital role. He doesn't go for many runs per over. He's all he's all at the batsman a lot of the time. OK, he wasn't so much in the first innings. I thought he bowled a bit short. But he, he's, a, he's a quality bowler, clearly. I mean, the, the, his wickets in Test cricket tell you that. And so they, that, that all-round effort from Australia was just a, a bit too much for England. That, that relentlessness... That we've been talking about uh, during this Test match, it's felt like that. It's, it's felt like a sort of relentless Australian performance. Mm. It just sort of gradually ground England down, and in the end, England just didn't quite have enough to resist. And we called it, didn't we? We said, you know, the first day, this feels like England clinging on. On the final day, you just had that feeling very early on in this Test match, and and so it proved. And England, England, I think will deeply regret how they played in the first uh, day or two of this Test
1: match. Obviously, there were there were certain wickets that England lost, which you do worry about. The way Jason Roy has been dismissed consistently in the series, in fact, in his five Test matches, he's been bowled five times, mostly through the gate. He had yeah. one absolute beauty from Pat Cummins at Headingley, but otherwise, he's been leaving quite a big gate between Bat and Pat, and I just think... He just doesn't look like he has the technique for test cricket against high-class seam bowling. If he's going to play maybe in Dubai or somewhere like that where the ball doesn't move much, or maybe even in South Africa possibly, he might be all right. But I just think on English pitches, or indeed when England go to New Zealand, I can't see how he can play the moving ball in the way that he does because he sort of pro pushes right out in front of himself at the ball and leaves a great uh, gap between bat and pad. I don't think he's worth persevering with as Mm. a test player. It sounds a bit harsh. Whereas Joe Denley I think has acquitted himself better than I expected. He's played two decent innings now, both of 50. He stuck it out well today. He, He looked a little bit more assured today, I suppose. I mean, not still convincing against the short ball, but generally his shot selection, his defence were were better. He looked quite calm and there was less of that sort of expansive driving, perhaps partly because of the situation. That's the the one weakness he seems to have. He's he's got a proneness to, to go for the big drive every so often and that's brought about his downfall a few times, a little bit like James Vince. I put him in the same category as James Vince. Maybe what he needs is you know one really long big inning and then he'll realise what he's got to offer and how to play Uh, and and perhaps he and Rory Burns could make uh, a decent opening partnership in the future but they definitely need somebody else at number four Roy 110
0: runs at 13 in this series and Denley 204 runs at 25. is actually perverse. If you look at the leading run scorers in this series, England have four of the top six. I mean, that says something about Australia's batting as well, really. I mean, it's been lamentable, apart from Steve Smith. 671 runs in three matches. And, and Labuschagne took the vital wicket today of, of Leach, just as it looks, as if England might cling on. Two hundred and ninety-one runs in his three matches, an average of, of fifty-eight. It's sort of bizarre, really, to see four Englishmen, England players, in the top six when you consider the problems they they seem to have. But I mean, Burns has you know has quietly had a pretty good series, three hundred and twenty-three runs. Denley, I mean, the only about Denley is his age and you think about the future. You th- I mean, Ash's series tend to be sort of watershed moments at, at the end of them, especially if you lose, I suppose. Do you ch- do you change things around? Or do you say, actually, we're in a, a World Test Championship cycle and we'll sort of look at it in two years' time? I mean, do you want Burns and Denley to be your opening pair when England go to Australia in whatever it is for the return in, in three years' time? Uh, you know, that's a question you might need to answer. You might need to, you know identify someone now and say actually no we're going to go for someone younger someone with an eye to the future but then they've they've tried all sorts of combinations and not much has worked i think it's fair to say over the last three or four years so for for the oval then i said you know ashes series tend to be watershed moments england have lost the ashes they've gone so what do they do for the oval do you think pope for roy might be a, a you know one change in the batting order and leave it at that
1: Yes, I, I mean they're not prone to you know massive changes and tinkering, are they? Uh, England selectors, and I think that's probably wise. You don't want a, a complete upheaval. Yeah, I, I think that would be a, a good move. Uh, Ollie Popes scored a double hundred for, for Surrey not so long ago, and uh, I saw him playing in a, a, a Surrey match recently. He looked to, to, to be his nimble, kind of fluent self, even though it was a 20-over game. But he, he, he's he got a nice balance about him at the crease, and he is very young, uh, but he's already proved his ability to play a long innings. So I, I think that's a great idea. You know, certainly uh, at the end of a series at, on his home ground to experience a bit of the intensity of this Australian attack. It's not going to get much tougher than to play against these bowlers. So, you know, it'd be a very valuable experience for him. Um, Obviously, the other thing is finding a a, a third seamer, someone who's got the the skills of a sort of Hazelwood or Cummins in the future, someone who perhaps uh, the selectors could identify, can build their career into someone that England can rely on as a spearhead.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think England's bowling is a is a problem as well. We talk about the batting. I think England's bowling in the future is is a potential problem. A, they're yeah you know, they're they're pretty thin on on top class spinners, and then seam bowlers as well. There's a lot of injury problems around. You know, what about the longevity of of Mark Wood, quality bowler if you can get him on the field? Uh, Ollie Stone, they they like the look of him, but he's had so many injury problems, and you know he's missed. Being available for this series through injury again, Chris Wokes. I don't know whether Chris is sort of moving closer to the end now. Um, he left out for this game and not used that much by Joe Root, and you know you have to question his effectiveness overseas. He has a much better record at home than overseas. Stuart Broad. We don't know about him. Is he going to retire? Is he going to you know continue? Jimmy Anderson. You know, question marks over his future. I think he you know he, he said in the past he wants to play on. You know, who else is there? Uh, Craig Overton. I, I thought he batted superbly today, really superbly well uh, today. But what about his bowling? Is it got is it got enough at, at, at Test level? There are the Curran's, uh, Tom, who's injured, Sam Curran, who we're not quite sure what he is at the moment.
1: Um, bowling an issue, I think, a big issue for England. Mm, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Uh, they they want to identify somebody of twenty. 20- or 21, who's six foot three, who's going to get bounce and can generate some pace for when England go back to Australia in a couple of years' time. Mm. They have to think how can we generate those kind of bowlers, which means perhaps looking at the, the state of county pitches, perhaps encouraging groundsmen to roll them a bit more and give them a bit more pace and take a bit more grass off so that we don't rely on the the nagging 74-mile-an-hour bowlers quite so much, play more county cricket in the middle of the summer, which isn't going to happen next year because of the 100, Mm. but maybe it could happen in subsequent years so that the county matches are spread more evenly throughout the season. You get a good range of conditions to play in. And the people at Loughborough, the, the coaching staff at Loughborough need to be identifying now uh, the two or three potential fast bowlers who can be Jofra Archer's partner and regain the ashes in two and a half years' time. Yeah, I mean, a few names, uh, Saki Mahmood at,
0: at Lancashire, there's Henry Brooks at, at Warwickshire, Tom Helm at Middlesex, um, I suppose you know what you're looking for, aren't you? Really, you're looking for a two hundred wicket Test match bowler. That's what that's what you're looking for. Someone is is there someone out there that can do that job? Really come through, play for England for six, seven, eight years, and take two hundred plus Test match wickets. England have been you know really spoiled you know in the last few years with Jimmy Anderson and Stuart Broad with a thousand wickets between them, but you know time moves on and 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 bowlers move on and they they are going to leave a, a massive hole when they go of course Joffrey archer is a big bonus for them he's going to fill uh, one of those holes but he can't do it all on his own, you know. There's it's been a tremendous expectation on him, but he he won't be able to do it on his own. He's going to need some serious support. So, uh, you know, we've said it, I think, quite a lot. There are uh, a few holes to be filled in this England side, and there are going to be some ups because it, there always are with with England, because they've got you know some exciting players, the likes of Stokes and Roode, et cetera, and Archer. But there are going to be some downs along the way, and there are probably going to be some scores below a hundred again sometime in the future. It's the nature of the beast. You mentioned the pitches in England and when county cricket is played, and the the type of players that are being produced. I don't I don't see any immediate solution to the problem. Well,
1: hopefully, whoever is the next England coach to replace Trevor Bayliss will have it as their number one priority to identify the the Test players that can sustain England's five-day team for the next few years because the focus undoubtedly has been on white ball cricket for the last couple of years or so and it's produced an excellent result in the World Cup. Now, the, the priority and the focus must be on Test cricket because the World Test Championship comes to its climax in two years' time, 2021. The final will be played, uh, presumably, at Lords that summer. Mm. So that is something that England can really focus on, which means identifying the players who are going to excel in the long form. But, yours. one thing I would say about that is I think
0: what England did after the last World Cup in Australia is they they harnessed the talent they had. The talent was there to play in the way they wanted and they harnessed it and they encouraged it. I'm not sure the talent is there to take England back to, say, number one in the world or number two in the world or be in the top two or, or even threaten to, to win in Australia. I'm not sure the talent is there. Yes, England have some high-quality players, some individuals, but I don't see that all-round team. When you look back at the team that won in Australia you know 3-1 uh, back in the day, you know, you, every one of them, yeah, quality player. I, I don't I don't see where those players are to giving them that sort of team structure to, to go forward and be really successful.
1: But you've got to start somewhere and they've yeah. got a core, you know, Stokes... I'm not saying give up, I'm Root, not saying give up. Bairstow and and Butler, those four players have the ability, they just need to, you know, maybe focus on their Red Bull game for a while and really try and see how far they can go with it. And obviously England need an opening pair, but I think Rory Burns can do a job and he's worked hard actually on improving Mm. his game. I think he's got a better, you know, he's become a better player through the series. Maybe Joe Denley is not quite the the same in the same sort of category, but somebody, there there must be players out there. It's a massive opportunity. It's probably too late this season for anyone to, to really put their hand up because there's only about three county championship matches left. But, there's a great opportunity in the winter to get some players playing for the Lions and show that they've got the aptitude to play four-day and five-day cricket, and then early next season as well to to do the same. Uh, and so, I I think someone will emerge, but at the point, at the moment, I'm not sure who that is. Yeah, well, I'm I'm not saying give up. I'm,
0: of course, I'm not saying give up. You you obviously have to try to identify players and, and you know try to find the right structure and the right team balance, all those sorts of things. But I'm I'm a bit skeptical. I you know talk about players emerging. You know who are they? If you look at the last Lions team that played, the one that played against Australia, a okay, you know the, the players are sort of taking their place in that that top six, and then the player that came in at number seven, Sam Curran, he sort of lifted it up a level. Um, so. But, you know, he's he's one I think he's one of the interesting players for the, for the future let I mean perhaps it's time to find out you know what he is as a player. Uh, for, for England and give him a go, but I mean, is, are there too many players like him? You know, England have already got sort of lots of all-rounders in that in that side. Anyway, we'll leave that issue aside for a moment. But you know, who who are the who are the batsmen that are going to challenge the ones that are there, and who are the bowlers that are going to challenge the the ones that are there? I'm not I'm not sure. I'm not confident that there is that pool of players at the moment to take England to the to the next level but okay you know you've got to you've got to try and find them if you can yeah of course you have
1: okay well that's a good question for the listeners so uh, a lot of you out yeah. there i'm sure watch your county cricket more than we've had the opportunity to so why don't you send in your two nominated opening batsmen and say one or two good fast good young fast bowlers uh, and send your ideas into the analyst podcast at gmail.com the analyst podcast at gmail.com and the best suggestions i'll send mm. a copy of my book uh cricket's greatest rivalry the ashes history in 12 great matches which i need to rewrite now after that Headingley match uh, a couple <laughs> of weeks ago but i'm happy to send a, a couple more copies of that out if you wouldn't mind sending us in your suggestions for england's future test openers both batting and bowling obviously uh, not including joffra archer In the shorter term, our next focus of course will be on the final test uh, at the Oval starting on Thursday uh, and England's focus will be to try and level the series to all of course. I just feel the way Australia have played they don't deserve a drawn series really, but uh, maybe England can turn the tables on. What do you think?
0: I think it'll be very difficult for England to to get themselves up uh, for the Oval on Thursday. I think Australia they've they've sort of got the series now, they've, they've, they've They haven't come to draw the series. They've come to win it. They've come to be the first Australian side to win in England since... 2001. That's been their focus. They're two one up with one to play. Of course, the toss and all those sorts of things can you know can play havoc with any sort of predictions. But I would have thought Australia in a good position to take this series three one. If England come back and, and win the match and make it two two, fair play to them. But it, it will not be easy for them to to get, get that that focus and that desire and that determination to to and well and skill as well to overturn what's a very good Australian side. Uh, well, it's got very good parts to it. The bowling attack and Steve Smith. They got to get. Steve Smith out for a start, 671 (laughs) runs in three matches. I mean, they haven't haven't really come up with many um, solutions to that problem. So you talk about England trying to beat Australia. They've done it once by the skin of their teeth in a miracle victory. Um, I'm I'm not that confident that they're going to make it 2-2.
1: Well, it's guaranteed to be a a tight match anyway. It's going to be a good tussle. We'll report back from every day of the Oval Test match. We're looking forward to it, even though England have now relinquished the ashes. Still, the series is up for grabs, and it's always a great Test match at the Oval. So we're looking forward to that, and we'll speak to you from there. Thanks for listening.
0: Indeed, thanks very much for listening. And, of course, Test Championship points up for grabs as well. There we go. Goodbye for now. Podcast Network.